Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. This is the first episode back from like a month-long hiatus, and if you're a patron of the podcast, you will know that the reason I was gone is because I got an agent for the book that I've been working on for so long. Yes, Cuba Fruit has an agent, and I do need to emphasize that language. I was kind of surprised by it, but it makes all the sense in the world. When you sign with a literary agency, you, they, like, the the language in the contract doesn't say that this agent represents a boy called Alex. The agent represents a book called Cuba Fruit, which is, makes way more sense and, and is occasion for celebration, and I certainly did some of that. But mostly, for the past month, I've just been incredibly busy with edits and writing and researching the next project because I would kind of like to get Cuba Fruit and the next one in the same contracts. I'm still very much an amateur to how these kinds of things work. But yeah, that is where I have been. Now I'm back. And for today's podcast, jumping back into the normal swing of programming, I am honored to be interviewing one of my all-time favorite novelists. And if you have gotten a drink with me at somewhere between the years of 2016 and probably 2020, there is almost certain that I brought up like the opioid epidemic and the war among Mexican drug cartels because I was reading and obsessively rereading Don Winslow's magnificent trilogy of novels, uh, Power of the Dog, The Cartel, and The Border. And for this first episode back, I am interviewing Don Winslow about his latest novel, City on Fire. City on Fire was the best new novel I read in 2021. And then, because of the pandemic, it was the best new novel I read in 2022. I, in prep for this interview, obviously, I binged a bunch of Winslow's uh, latest radio, podcast, TV appearances, and I was pretty bummed, but I kind of understand, that this is kind of his swan song. I think Winslow is 68 or 69 years old. He's written psychotically ambitious books. They take a lot of time, and especially with stuff like the Cartel Trilogy, he had to just mire himself in the most upsetting research material you can imagine. And so, City on Fire is the first of a trilogy, and because he plans to retire upon their completion, he really wanted to make sure that with this book tour, he could meet his readers, shake hands, extend thanks, get to know them. And so, in hopes of, you know, being able to go out maskless among the masses, the release of City on Fire was postponed from, I think, the summer of 2021 until the summer of 2022, but, that kind of worked out for my approach here, because his publicist was kind enough to send me the novel, I think back last summer. I read it in two days. I fell in love with it. But then, since the book got delayed by a year, I was occasioned this month to reread it. And also to give it a pretty hearty skim after the one thorough rereading as I was trying to cultivate some questions for the interview. And I fell in love with it in a totally new way. There are a lot of plot twists and turns in the novel, and so now, going back to it, I saw how fucking meticulously everything was set up. City on Fire is the first in a projected trilogy about 
an Irish-Italian gang war in Rhode Island, and it begins in 1986, I think, and then it concludes. He, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if I should say like he he let that he let it slip in this conversation. It's a little detail. I don't think he'd be bothered by it. But he mentions in our conversation that the series concludes in 1997. Over the past few years, Don Winslow has written as I said, psychotically ambitious books. They occupy a huge canvas. They're incredibly impressive. Readers love them, but it's, they're also the kinds of books that his colleagues kind of marvel at. He is both a very commercial, very mainstream author who also happens to be an author's author. In not his last novel, The Border, but the one before that, The Force, which incidentally, all, like all the major reviews for The Force made liberal use of words like epic and breathtaking and masterpiece, and it was all of those things. Its anti-heroes are cops in the NYPD, and there's a big gun deal going on, and there's an opioid epidemic, but it's not a standard cops and bad guys story, nor an anti-hero cop and bad guy story, like a Dirty Harry thing. Winslow's approach to these stories is... Uh, he dives headlong into sort of the bowels of hell with these things, but he also goes horizontally. He absorbs into his narratives the inner workings of the systems that his characters inhabit. When he's writing about prisoners, he also writes about prisons. When he's writing about cops, he's writing about the national trends of policing. When he writes about narcos, he writes about cartels. When he writes about someone in the DEA, he writes about the American government. Now, his new novel is not at all that kind of... I forget what the word is for a dark satire. It's, it's not a social commentary, but it is just as sprawling and fucking momentous and exciting and hilarious and violent as all of those other stories. But those adjectives, and I know I sound like almost cartoonishly in love with this. I am. But those adjectives are the ones that are no, most frequently applied to Winslow and his work. What I wanted to talk about with him, aside from the institutions about which he has written and certain thematic preoccupations, the kinds of things that I most often hear him discuss in interviews, I wanted to ask him mostly about what seems at first the very, very subtle, but then book by book, the increasingly distinct authorial voice that Winslow employs in his work. For some reason, it's always stayed with me. I was watching this interview with Stephen King, and of course he's given a zillion interviews, but the interviewer said, what is something that no one ever asks you about and you would really like to discuss now and then? And he said, the language. Nobody ever asks me about the language. And when you think about it, yeah, it's true. Whenever, if you think about Stephen King, the first thing that comes to mind is, movies probably and then if you're if you're a reader of his work you think of maybe certain stylistic inclinations some of the recurring themes like about parenthood and addiction but very seldom do you ever hear an interviewer say to Stephen King like oh I noticed you sort of favored short sentences in an action scene or long sentences in a very contemplative emotional scene and so in the interest of maybe breaking things up a little bit and also because I, I'm, I just got an agent for a book on which Don Winslow has had an enormous influence I wanted to ask him about the language. And so it was genuinely one of like the great honors of my life to be able to talk with Don Winslow. Sounds fucking super hokey, I know. I don't normally talk like this. It, yeah, it was just, it was my birthday this month. I got an agent. Like, I fucking talked to Don Winslow. I know you, I know you and I have not talked, but it, like a lot has been going on. And I'm fucking thrilled to share this with you. And of course, to be back in the swing of normal programming. So here it is, my conversation with novelist Don Winslow about his new novel, City on Fire. Well, thank you again for, for joining. I really appreciate it. Obviously, as I mentioned, 
prior to our recording. This is, uh, you have, were an influential writer when I discovered your work uh, just a few years ago, I think right before The Force came out. Um, the first one I landed on was Power of the Dog, because I knew that Ridley Scott oh, okay. was circling Cartel at the time. The momentum of it was really what struck me. I had never read anything that moved so quickly. And um, I was trying, I, I just went through um, City on Fire for the second time. I read it, I got my advanced review copy immediately prior to the initial release date. So I read it over a year ago, right. just reread it, and there's so much story going on that it was really only in the second turn with it that I started mm. to appreciate some of the stylistic things you were trying to accomplish. And in trying to condense some of these observations into words with my girlfriend last night, I settled on the idea that you do a great job of kind of disappearing on the page, and there's a vanishing act there. Does that ring a bell? Are you trying for that? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, listen, I'm very much in the crime genre. You know, that that's my neighborhood. That's where I live. Uh, it's what I love to do. Uh, this is self-serving, but I think some of the best writing going is in the crime genre, in the thriller genre. Uh, the disappearing act, yeah. Because, look, I, I'm not interesting. I think that the characters should be interesting. The story should be interesting. Uh, but not me. Uh, I'm not that interested in my observations. Um, I, I view my job as bringing the reader into a world that he or she couldn't otherwise get into. And, and the way I choose to do that is for the most part, there are some exceptions, but for the most part to see that world through the character's eyes and the character's experience. And so I want to disappear inside the characters and just let them speak, let them see, let them feel. Well, there is a guy here who I think is kind of like Don Winslow, or at least the closest thing to the Don Winslow stand-in, and it's the narrator, who kind of vacillates between third-person limited and total omniscience, hops about with total mm -hmm. abandon, and mm -hmm. I just, yeah. I had an experience this year that you might remember vividly. I, I, someone handed me The Friends of Eddie Coyle, and I had never heard of George B. Higgins. And just talking about him with a reporter from the Boston Herald, just now. He was doing an interview and asking me what are the greatest crime novels ever written, and, and I said, without a doubt, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Well, the one that I read is the most recent edition. I don't know if you've seen it with the preface by Dennis Lehane. Yep, sure. There's a bit of a score. Obviously, he's beyond reverential, but there's a bit of a scathing tone where he says, you know, George V. Higgins kind of crawled up his own ass in the future tr with the voice thing, trying to catch every little nuance of voice. And he kind of went in yeah. like a Finnegan's Wake thing, which I discovered. I tried yeah, to read yeah. um, Kogan's Trade, and I couldn't <laughs> get through it. But I was no, wondering. I'm convinced that no one's ever actually read Finnegan's Wake. I, uh, I'm totally convinced that no one has ever actually read it. I just got, I think it's brand new, an, a dramatic audiobook reading of the entire wake. And I, you have to look at the book as you're listening to it. I still don't know what the hell is going on. But it, it elicits a chuckle here and there, the cleverness. Um, but Listen, I read Ulysses every year. Really? Um, yeah, I do. Because uh, it's, it's so wonderful. But Finnegan's Wake, nah. Did you ever read... Um, I'm taking you very far afield here. Actually, no. We're going to circle back. This is part of the question. Um, I, your, George Higgins, we were. Yeah, and your narrator here is so chatty. Very similar, in a colloquial sense, to the narrator from The Force 
and from the Cartel trilogy, but I could imagine you getting that kind of Finnegan's Wake, falling in love with your own narrator, and just sort of circling mm-hmm. the block with him, and going on yeah. digressions, and not to puff you up, you are at a point in your career, I think, where if an editor was like, hey, Don, I don't think this digression is worthwhile, you could sort of, you could, you could insist upon it, but do you have to fight that temptation? Because this narrator was so, I wanted his company rather than that of the characters. Hmm. Um, look, you know, it's, it's funny, I have what I call the 80-20 rule, have you ever heard yeah, of that? Yeah, yeah in life as well as writing you know if you behave yourself 80 percent of the time you can probably screw up 20 percent of the time and get away with stuff yeah it's funny in the force um i had this digression where these four or five cops sit down at dinner it's about two-thirds of the way through the book and nothing happens they just tell stories right and the um, editor kept taking it out and I kept putting it back and this this went back and forth three or four times and I finally just wrote stat you know leave it the hell alone I know nothing happens uh but I felt that um a the stories were just so damn good there were stories that cops told me and they were for the most part I thought howlingly funny and I think most readers agree but I also thought that the reader at that point needed a breather because there'd been a lot that had happened and I knew what was coming up was going to be very intense and very fast. And I wanted to give the reader a little, huh, I'm just going to sit down with these guys and listen to some stories. And then this guy's going to kick this ball down the hill again. Right. So, yeah, I, I think, listen, I'm in love with language. We all are. We wouldn't be in this business. Right. You, you do fall in love with with words and with playing with them and making them try to sound great. And so, yeah, I think there are times in, in this book and in its two sequels where, you know, I, I kind of go off a bit. Well, Peter Bogdanovich once spoke scathingly about Lawrence of Arabia, saying that the photography is its own character and it, it takes the viewer out of the narrative just to go, wow, what a beautiful yeah. shot. Um, and you don't do anything like that, but there is one sentence in, and I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about before I get into it, there's one page long sentence in City on Fire of grieving and reminiscence. Yeah. And yeah. that, it was so great. I remember an interview, a public interview with David Foster Wallace and they kept making jokes mm-hmm. about the long sentences he writes. And he goes, you know, I smile when yeah. people say that, but I also feel defeated because if you do the long sentence right, nobody notices that there was no period. Right. And um, yeah. I was wondering, were you, did you just feel it was the cadence of that long sentence that was yeah. working or were you trying to swing for the fence? Nope. It was the, the cadence. Um, I, I felt that that stream of grief needed to be exactly that. And that stream of memory needed to be exactly that. It, it needed to be a stream that just kept flowing uh, until it reached the ocean, if you will. You know, uh, I didn't want to interrupt it. Uh, and I, I wanted to stay inside Danny's heart and his head in that. And I also think uh, on a personal level, you know, that memory is like that. You know, um, frankly, the older you get, you know, I'm a lot older than you. Uh, the more grief you have, unfortunately, the more people you've lost. You know, um, that's just part of life. It's it's part of getting older, and so you you come to this experience of grief, and and that's the way that I experienced it. You know, that um, 
with the memories of the, those people were not clean kinds of well-structured sentences. I don't, I don't know if it was in the cartel or the border where you have, I have like two pages of acknowledgments for the reporters who were, killed, who were murdered in the course of the um, yeah, cartel. Yeah, the cartel reporting. Um, you, what you're saying actually takes me back to the Finnegan's Wake thing. Um, Michael Shabin published a beautiful piece in the New York Review of Books like 10 years ago about uh, trying to read Finnegan's Wake. And he read it and he had the skeleton key and everything. But he talked about the reason he was he finally took the leap is because he read Ulysses again for the first time in like 25 years. And he's like, mm -hmm. I had no idea how beautiful it was when I first fell in love with oh. it at 25. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I Leopold Bloom, you saying that you touch base with your friend Leopold every year, that sent that that page of grief, that grief sentence does have that Joycean cadence kind of it's not staccato, but it's um it, it is it tumbles. Can I say one more thing sure. about that though? It's interesting you bring up staccato because I was very deliberately trying to avoid that. I I knew the kinds of vowels and the kinds of consonants that I wanted in that rambling passage and they needed to be softer you know what i mean and, mm -hmm. and they needed to be longer and you know because so much of the book is staccato and it's tough and you know has those plosive consonants in it you know this was very deliberately the other the longer the softer yeah that that surgical precision about craft is something I'm gonna, all right, I'm gonna mention something where I was just quietly appreciating it and I was like, I'm not gonna get into this. But you pulled something off in the beginning of this book that in my second go through, I was, it blew my mind. And it's the exact, the, it's the exact demonstration of craftsmanship that I think people might be inclined to ignore because there's so much momentum in your books. But there's a scene at Pasco's cookout before all hell breaks loose and Marty is singing these Irish ballads. And yeah. as you are, and everyone is situated around the meal, they're, they're sort of full food and they're dozing. And you're also breaking up the verses with backstory. And then you bring mm -hmm. us back into the moment of the singing. And the words he's singing foretell the future of this drama. Mm -hmm. You present us with the past, the present, and the future in four pages or something. And I was like, holy shit, this is the most remarkably you're juggling three chainsaws there. And it's the kind of thing that I never read about, that craftsmanship. Um, all those balls you keep in the air. Usually when I read reviews of your work, it's about the language, uh, well, you know, yeah, the cadence yeah. of it and stuff. But I wanted to sort of let you know well, thank you. how That's impressive I thought that was. Well, thank you. That, that sequence took days to write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Without seeming to be overly precious here, I think that sequences can turn on a syllable, you know, that one too many or one too few can can wreck it. Yeah. You know, um, and a lot of times for me, it's a matter of reading it out loud. I, I won't necessarily hear the right stuff, but I will hear the wrong stuff. You know, it'll clang. Right. And yeah. you talking about the sort of the pivotal nature of a syllable. I, um, in hearing you talk about your work and how your method has changed, what, what, what comes up again and again is sort of the Leviathanic first draft of Power of the Dog, where you were so lost <laughs> in the weeds, approaching yeah. 2,000 pages. And mm -hmm. 
it struck me, the way that story rings with me is as kind of like a, a storytelling puberty. Like it was a really horrible thing and then you got past it. And I, maybe I'm wrong here, but do you ever get in the weeds like that again? Or are your first drafts fairly lean? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm in the weeds probably most of the time. Probably not to the extent that I was in Dog and later in Cartel. Dog, I, there was one point I just laid my head down on the keyboard and almost cried. I, I just thought, I can't do this. It's, it's beyond me. It's beyond my skill, you know. I should go back to doing the other thing. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I get lost a lot. Uh, and I've probably said this before, there's an old martial arts saying, um, it, it refers to self-defense moves, but I think it, it, it's, it's pertinent to writing. And it asks the question, the rhetorical question, how do you carve a tiger? And the answer is you take a big block of wood and you cut away everything that doesn't look like a tiger. <laughs> so that's great. But um, thank you very much, Don. That's going to help me write my book. But th the point is that before you can carve, you have to have the big block of wood. Huh. You know? Uh, and so that's what I do. I, I just write a big freaking block of wood in the early drafts and then I go back to it and I start carving the tiger carving the tiger and carving the tiger now every once in a while I go well maybe this tiger can have a little fat on it if the fat's good <laughs> you know if it's funny if it's enjoyable if it's meaningful uh, but other than that, on those rare occasions, you know, you just got to keep carving and carving and carving. Yeah, on the cover of the review copy, it says you have a little note saying you've come back to this over the years. Are you implying it's it was a tormented conception or it just you would dabble and dabble and go on to something else? Mm. I think I was more tormented than the conception was. You know, I, I wrote this the first chapter 27 years ago up to the, the up to the fight no no up to um them leaving the beach when pam first appears okay and um and then i've picked it up and put it down as you allude to uh part of that was i was busy doing other things right you know i was writing that little drug trilogy and the force and a bunch of other things. But part of it was, I, I don't think I was quite ready to go home yet, either physically or metaphorically, you know? Uh, I think I was avoiding that confrontation with the past that you have to have in order to write about your home. Um, and so finally, I guess I, I reached an age um, no one would accuse me of being mature, but perhaps a, a level of maturity that, you know, I thought, okay, now I can do this. Now I'm ready to do this. If you could backtrack, if you have the numbers off the top of your head, uh, you, you talk about that monstrous first draft of Dog inching toward 2,000 pages. Like how, how big no, no, was... No, inching, inching past 2,008 oh, pages. Really? Okay. <laughs> yes. Jesus. Yes. I remember. <laughs> pain as a way of searing itself into your mind. Well, how about something like The Force? Yeah. How long was that first draft, the big piece of wood? 
Mm, in excess of a thousand, probably. Okay. Is that generally where they hover? Mm, Any more, they hover around eight to nine hundred. Okay. Um, <laughs> he hastens to add, not thousands. Yeah. Because I, I think, listen, I, I, I hope I've gotten more skillful, mm -hmm. you know, um, that I, I may be better at, at you know, at, at getting the tiger than, than I used to be. You know, this is reminding me for some reason of um, Quentin Tarantino talking about having a conversation with Eleanor Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola's wife, mm -hmm. and it was, he was still grappling with the sort of shapeless bulk of Inglorious Bastards in, on the page. Mm -hmm. And he mm -hmm. said, you know, I know it's, he was in his early 40s at the time, and he was saying to her, it's Mount Everest, I don't know if I want to do Everest right now, and she says, take it from me, the filmmaker of Hearts of Darkness who chronicled apocalypse now there's going to come a day where you you can't do everest so do it now whether you think you're ready or not there's going to be a day where that door is closed and it does feel as though you've just been churning out epic after epic after epic even when you put out a short story collection it's gigantic and the short stories are not that short um is this just the natural sprawl of your imagination or are you thinking like now's the time for everest no i i think it's I tend toward it naturally. I like big stories. Mm -hmm. I like long books. I like reading long books. You know, I, I'm that guy who rereads War and Peace frequently um, and Anna Karenina. Uh, and so, but with this book, I always knew it was going to be an epic. I always knew it was going to be a trilogy in ways I didn't know that the drug books and the drug books were never intended to be a trilogy. You know, I quit the drug book after each one, said I'd never go back. Right. Uh, this one, though, I knew because I knew I was going to be following the life of Aeneas, you know, from the Aeneid mm. through its its resolution. And so I, and then I was comparing those stories with um, modern crime, where I live, both in terms of fiction and in terms of, of real history. And so I knew I was going to be writing a book about American crime and American criminals, but over a course of time and over an evolution. And so, yeah, I, I knew from the moment I had Danny laying out on that beach, you know, that we were going to be leaving and, and going other places and it was going to take a while. You mentioning that you knew from the outset it was going to be a trilogy, unlike with the cartel. I was, I made note of that because I realize all the trilogies I love were accidental or, you know, the first one mm. did well and so they kept getting an opportunity and they rounded it out at three. Are there, I mean, the only trilogy I love that I think was intended as a trilogy is uh, James Elroy's Underworld USA trilogy. But are there... Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Are there structural yeah. aspects of a trilogy? For some reason I'm thinking, isn't it a rule that, like, the middle volume ends at the bleakest place? So it's a long road of redemption in the third. I don't know. I, look, I, I don't pay attention to those rules. Okay. I, no one has showed me the mountain from which they come. <laughs> Any of these rules, right? You know, and I've heard so many of them. Look, I've never had a writing class. So maybe this is why I don't know the rules, you know, because no one ever taught them to me. But, you know, the, there's so many the rules uh, it's not a thriller unless your character's in jeopardy on page one said who 
I, I wrote a book called The Winter Frankie Machine where nothing happens for 66 pages. The guy fixes his ex-wife's plumbing and he goes to lunch with his daughter. I did notice because that. Because yeah. I thought that, and boy, I have editorial fights about it, but I thought that unless we really loved this guy, we weren't going to care when his life was threatened. So technically, it's a simple matter of you know threatening his life on page one. I just didn't want to do it. Uh, the accidental trilogy is kind of funny, you know, because Power of the Dog did not do well. That it did well overseas, but it mind. did not do well here. I heard you yeah. say in, a, in an interview that after that book was published, which I would think is just something that would immediately catapult you to the top of recognition, but you said you had like 30 bucks in your checking at one point after... 37. 37. 37. Give me, give me my set. Sorry, bucks. I thought it was 2008. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah Mike, yeah. Um, I it did nothing here. Uh, it was you know like big in Spain, I think Spanish-speaking countries and Germany, but but no, my career was was flatlined after Dog. So you know, Cartel did not come as a result of the public demanding. <laughs> what followed uh, directly? Power of the Dog, Frankie Machine. I wrote a couple of those surfer books. Okay. I think. Uh, well, I wrote I wrote Frankie. I wrote Frankie Machine, um, and then I wrote um, like. I don't know, man. I have to look at my shelves. Look at that how? Yeah, I wrote um, the Dawn Patrol. Okay. A uh, book about you know very sort of slight book about surfers in, in San Diego. Which, you know because I needed after Dog, man. I needed a break. You know, I I needed a lighter topic. You said something um, in an interview that prompted a question of mine to Margaret McMillan, who wrote a very nice, slim volume, just sort of meditating on the different facets of warfare from all from her decades of study. And I was asking sort of how it disrupted her day, all that research, because I had heard an interview with you talking about researching the cartel and just sort of coming home and sitting down for a sober meal with your wife. And she'd say, yeah. what'd you do today? And you would just say, I worked on a book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you never want to go back to that material? The material of never. such carnage? Never. Um, look, I say this as an American who was sitting safely, for the most part, on this side of the border, right? And, and I did dedicate that book to over 200 Mexican journalists who were killed covering this story. So any issues or problems I have are insignificant. Right. Let's set that out from the beginning. But yeah, it was a brutal experience, those three books, you know, because I, there were days I did nothing but look at atrocity videos or atrocity photos or autopsy photos. There were the phone calls that came, you know, about people that you knew who had been killed. Um, there were the overdose deaths you know, of, of people that you spent years with, um, talking to, who shared their lives with you. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, when I was finished with the border and listen, I, I was dragged kicking and screaming into riding the cartel on the border. Uh, I, I was done, finally done with it. But yeah, you, you don't, bring that back to the dinner table, you know? Um, it was the same when I was an investigator, you know, you had 
a lot of the cases were pretty mundane, but a, but a number of them were not. And um, that's not something you're going to come and share with your your wife or your kid, right? You know. Well, what I. You do today? It's you know you can't observe something from within. You can't tell how it's influencing you. But I, I remember Norris Church, uh, Norman Mailer's last wife, um, yeah. when she, he was embarking on his last novel about. Hitler, um, she was like, these are the final years of your life and I don't want your head in that space because you don't see it, but I'm going to see it at the dinner table, essentially. Yeah, yeah. my wife was um, happy when when that trilogy was over, definitely. You, you yep. manifested it, a kind of silence, or? Uh, she said uh, that I was depressed. I, I don't know that I agreed, but that was her take on it. Yeah, it, it, you would be quiet for long periods of time. And, it, you know, it's hard to get thoughts and images out of your head. But again, I don't want to make too much of it, you know. Right. Again, whatever I went through is, you know, minor in comparison to what other people, you know, genuinely suffered. Well, I would think there was a type of anxiety in this case with this trilogy. I don't know if you have a nickname for it, um, but where you're stepping into actual conversation with the greats, like the actual the legends on which every great story we know kind of re kind of leans the shoulders yeah. yeah and is there anxiety in that respect sure. yeah it's nothing like the anxiety of you know writing about the mexican drug cartels but there's as they're still alive yeah yeah but there's there's anxiety of am i good enough you know can can i match this and there was also the anxiety but it was also the great fun of finding the modern equivalents to those stories you know it's like well you 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 can't introduce a trojan horse into providence in 1987 what what would the trojan horse be you know um later in in book three you know the the big conflict is over who gets to marry the princess lavinia you know and take over the kingdom well that doesn't make any sense <laughs> you know in las vegas in 1997 or in in book two um you know where aeneas uh sees uh murals painted on a cave wall of the trojan wars what's the modern equivalent of that you know my answer to it was it's a movie it's a film and danny comes on the film set of them making a movie of what was basically book one uh, so, you know, there was anxiety around that, of course, because in a way you're, you're saying, well, I'm going to tread the same ground that minor writers like Homer and Virgil and Aeschylus trod. <laughs> <laughs> Dig me. Uh, but um, and, you know, of course, you're never going to reach those heights. You're not going to reach even, the, you know, the base camp of that mountain. But uh, but hopefully you write a, a good contemporary crime novel that can stand on its own while borrowing from those themes. One more question. As yep. I mentioned to you before we got started, um, I did just get an agent for a good novel for that I wrote. Congratulations. Thank you. And I think a parallel with your life. I think you said you couldn't quit your day job until book six and uh this is my sixth novel um good for you and man. thank you and i am in the situation now where i'm awaiting um, my agent's edits and mm -hmm. then i'm going to destroy my body with caffeine get them back to her and yep. she's going to start the submission process is there yep. a piece of advice you would give to someone embarking on their first round of submissions and maybe their first encounter with an editor yeah first of all listen to the editor 
but that doesn't mean to be slavishly obedient. At the end of the day, it's your book. But definitely listen to what I think she said she has to say. Uh, second, other people are very often very good at pointing out what the problems are, less good at finding the solutions. Okay. Uh, so you, you might want to pay particular attention to what they say are issues, but know that the solutions are probably going to come out of your head. The third thing is when you go in, you know, into submissions, God send the first publisher buys your book. Hope so. Rooting for you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, if they don't, you must not be discouraged. Uh, I think it was, I think 15 publishers, including the one that just rang now, uh, turned down my first book, <laughs> right? Uh, and the 16th gave me a two book contract and I, I've been under contract pretty much you know, 30 some odd years since. So don't like sort of cherish a rejection like it's some noxious weed you want to grow in your garden. You know, just take it, move on, man, and, and never give up. Mm -hmm.